Hello, Canada, and welcome to another episode of Canadian Common Sense. This is Canadian Common Sense with Lewis and Tony. Good afternoon, Canada. Today's date is September 16th, 2020, and it's Tony here in Saskatchewan. And Lewis out here in a still very smoky BC. Yikes. Um, your forest fires are still down in the States. Oh, no. Still uh, still fire on the other side of the border in Washington. So, Oh, good. So, I mean, it's uh, terrible to have the smoke, but at least uh, your backyard isn't burning, so. Yeah, no, uh, we've uh, had a pretty quiet year for fires here in BC, so uh, not really too much of a concern there. So, Excellent. All right, well, we've got a lot going on tonight, and what kind of show am I going to say we're going to have tonight, Lewis? Uh, could it be a barn burner? <laughs> yes, it could very well be. Um. I know we're not going to get through everything that I've got in the list tonight, so let's prioritize. We On the show tonight, Justin Trudeau talks universal basic income and makes Lewis right. Patty Hyju, what did she know, when did she know it, and how is it she made Tony wrong? Blaine Higgs, once again, Premier of New Brunswick. In Toronto, shootings are up, gang activity up, gun crime up. Let's talk what how those are all related. Aaron O'Toole and so so much more. All right, why don't we start off with New Brunswick? We'll give uh, Blaine Higgs a quick shout out. Congratulations, Mr. Higgs! Uh, another majority government, or I should say, uh, another victory, and uh, now a majority government. Twenty-seven seats out of forty-nine, so he needed twenty-five to uh, win a majority. So a very slim majority. Bigger stories in this was that Liberal leader Kevin Vickers, who did not have a seat, did not win a seat, and has now stepped down as Liberal leader. Yes, and if the name Kevin Vickers sounds familiar to you, uh, he is the uh, he was he's the former Sergeant at Arms on Parliament Hill who uh, killed the. Um, the in, I, 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 for lack of a better term, the insurgent that. Uh, that got into uh, the parliament buildings back when Stephen Harper was prime minister. Yeah. So he was a uh, national hero and I find it, it odd that he couldn't, you know, translate that profile into more electoral success, honestly. Well, I mean, let's, let's be honest. I mean, he, he's, he, he was a national hero for for what he did and and i still i i still admire the man for what he for what he did that day um but he decided to run as a liberal i mean i'm i'm not i it just makes you want to question his uh intelligence level yes i would agree with that and I mean, I guess maybe East Coast politics is different. I mean, certainly in Western Canada, you mean you might as well just jump off a bridge if you want to run as a, as a liberal. So uh, maybe in the Maritimes, it's a different story, but it certainly did not work out for Mr. Vickers at any rate. 
No, it didn't. And, uh, uh, and, and it's unfortunate for him, but uh, congratulations to Blaine Higgs and his conservative team. Yeah, I know. One more note I find interesting with this election is the NDP. Now, they've been shut out for the fifth straight election, but their popular vote, 1.7%. Well, I think I have a new favorite province. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Um stunned and they uh I'm not sure if it's a matter of disorganization. I know they had a hard time getting candidates nominated in time. I think that or yeah, I think that was for the provincial election. So perhaps it's just uh a lack of local organization, or maybe it is that New Brunswickers just don't like the NDP. Well, it, that's very possible. I mean Look at uh, look at the NDP in Alberta for I don't know since the beginning of time until uh, until like six years ago. Yeah, that's true. Yep. And now they're tied in the polls with uh, Jason Kenney and the Conservatives right now in in Alberta. As I shudder just to hear just by hearing that, but yes, that's that's true. They are so. Yeah, which is pretty damn scary if you ask me that Alberta is willing to vote NDP again. What has happened to Jason Kenney? Yeah, and you know, I think that's just a little bit of discontent. I'm hoping that that uh, I'm hoping that that springs back. I know that even the I'm not, I don't know if it's if it's actually called the Wexit Party in Alberta. There's two independence parties, and between the two of them, they're polling around 11 percent right now. So there's certainly some discontent all around Alberta. Yeah, it's not great support, but uh, and and certainly doesn't back up the the uh, uh, narrative that Alberta is wants to separate. Um, I I think, however, if if the if there is an election, federal election this fall, and Justin Trudeau wins again, I think that I think we're going to see an actual an actual separation threat from from western canada and it'll be very real i don't think it's real right now i don't think that it's i don't think uh, western canadians are are angry enough yet um it seems like in quebec all it takes is uh someone to look at a quebecois the wrong way and they become a separatist but um i think and I've, and I've been saying this since the last election, and I've been saying this on this show, that I did not believe the hype behind Western separation. I just didn't think it was real. I didn't think that Wexit had the support that they claimed to have. And, uh, and it turns out 10% support between two separatist parties, uh, that makes me right again. And um, but I I am very, very worried that if there's a federal election this fall and, and Justin Trudeau wins, um, that a Western separation movement will actually be uh, a real threat this time. Yeah. And actually, we'll segue into that. If there is indeed a federal election this fall, that actually puts the provincial election in Saskatchewan in danger. Um, actually, I just would have learned that from uh, just some discussions with some of my political friends here is that if there is a federal election and 
then perhaps the election here in Saskatchewan provincially will end up being put off until April of next year, which is actually the very latest they could have it because that would be five years. Right. And uh, and I know that here in BC, John Horgan is talking about calling an election for this fall as well. So um, oh. it could put that in jeopardy. Uh, I mean, I, I don't, I do and I don't understand John Horgan on this one because uh, I do understand him wanting to call an election right now because the NDP support is sky high right now. He, I believe, is the most popular premier in the country. Um, oh. So, and I and I believe the, the latest poll results showed that the BC Liberal Party, which is really the only other real political party in this province, um, and is a coalition of, of conservatives and liberals, um, would almost get shut out. Like, oh boy. It, it, it would be devastating to that party. And, and I got to be honest, I understand why. John Horgan has, been, has done a great job during this pandemic of stepping back, not being the center of attention and allowing the uh, provincial health officer to be the face of, of this pandemic and uh, followed the advice of, of our provincial health officer and uh, uh, and as far as I'm concerned, has done a fantastic job of it. The problem is, is that I don't agree with the rest of his policies. The only thing, say, is, yeah. the only thing is, is that the, the pandemic is first and foremost and in people's faces every single day of their lives right now. And it's the only thing that people really actually care about at the moment. And on that topic, on that subject, John Horgan's done a great job. So I now the uh, the the other reason or the, the now the other side of the coin, which is the one where I don't understand John Horgan, is why would you have an election right now? I mean, the government of BC is working great as, as it is. Uh, you why would you call one in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of? economic destruction why would you call an election at least wait until spring next year like i don't know why you would do it this fall well see i think you actually answered your own question because they are in the middle of a pandemic he has a minority government what a great time to a get a majority and b get a majority before the bills start coming in and then the people see how huge the deficit's going to be that's true. You make a very good point about the about the deficit, and, and and so he if he can have an election before a fall fiscal update is 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 due, um, that would definitely benefit him. Yeah, and that actually dovetails onto a potential federal election. Now, you had sent me an article. I think it was last weekend uh, about Justin Trudeau and what has now become the the central theme of what their re-election bid would be if they call for an election this fall. And what was that exactly? Oh, let's just give everybody money. You know what? That's actually the best way to sum it up. <laughs> yep. Uh, universal basic income. And this, and this is where 
you, Lewis, were right. And I think you actually jumped on this train at least a month ago, might even have been longer than that, that he was going to try to morph the Serb into a universal basic income. And what do you know? Universal basic income based at, oh my gosh, $2,000 a month. Yeah. And it seems that it's it's something that um, every media outlet in the country is now talking about and talking about in a positive light. Like it's something that is going to be good for this country. It's not. It's not no. going to be good for this country because once you're on the government dole, the government calls the shots and it bankrupts the country. And I mean, we've oh, seen cool. that we've seen that over and over and over again in socialist countries. You can't just spend money all the time. Your money loses its value. It becomes worthless. And that $2,000 a month the government's giving you is not going to be a drop in the bucket by the time that the devaluation of your currency is done. Yeah, and you know, uh, Parliamentary Budget Officer Ijeru uh, had stated that not only you know are, are our current deficit level unsustainable, he also has said that right now it's actually the Bank of Canada that is buying Government of Canada bonds. And speaking of unsustainable you can't just keep printing money to well i guess i can't even say get out of a deficit because this is just increasing our deficit mr Giroux also said this could be a 97 billion dollar price tag and how many times have we on this show in the last couple of months talked about the problems with the serb namely that people are comfortable saying now ah, you know what two thousand a month sure i'll just uh i'll just stay at home instead of going to work for 2200 or 1800 a month for example mm -hmm. yeah and then now the problem is is that there are several problems but oh my god yeah we now now you were saying that claude Giroux said that the uh uh the parliamentary budget officer said that that it was going to be a 97 billion dollar price tag or something like that that was that was his estimate yeah yeah but that isn't even for a true ubi a true UBI is every single person in Canada gets it, and and a true UBI, the deficit, or the the price tag on that would be higher than this year's deficit of three hundred and fifty billion dollars. That ninety-seven billion dollar number, I believe, was for anyone making under. Uh, that was to give it to to every every person in the country that is below the poverty line. And and that would still cost ninety seven billion. Ridiculous. And I'm going to throw this out there because I've heard this way too many times in discussions with people that I know. I, we haven't really brought this point up on the show, but um, I was the Canadian Taxpayers Federation kind of triggered my memory on it, and. I just get furious when people say, well, employers just need to pay more. Then they people won't take the $2,000 a month. And I thought, it's not the employers who are going to be paying more. It's you, the end user, the customer, that will be paying that extra money on the wages when you have to pay more for the goods and or services that those employers are creating because they obviously have to offset these increased wages somehow. So, no – just having employers pay more is not the answer, people. No, people think that that businesses are are 
have like an endless pit of money like the government does. And the government doesn't even have an endless pit of money, but they do have access to the Bank of Canada where they can just say, well, just print a whole bunch more money and we'll spend it. Exactly. But I don't have that opportunity as a business owner. I don't have that available to me. I can't just go to the bank and say, hey, eh, give me a $100,000 loan so I can pay everybody in my business that works for me more money this year. I can't do that. I got to get the money from somewhere and it comes from my customers. And when you raise your 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 salaries to a point where you got to raise the rates you charge your customers to a point that they just that where they start balking at it and going i'm not going to pay that and they go to someone who uh is paying a lot less to their employees because they're charging them a lot less that's what happens that's when businesses go out of business is because they can't afford to stay afloat they can't afford to make their payroll they can't afford for the owner to make enough money if I paid my employees more and myself less so that my employee so that my customers didn't have to pay more, my employees would be making more than me. And I'm sorry, but I do most of the work in this company. Oh, totally, yeah. I mean, it's just the uh, the argument's ridiculous for and as far as I'm concerned, people who just throw that out as their solution clearly don't understand economics because I mean the money has to come from somewhere and it's always going to be down at the end user. So, yeah. you, you know, I mean, if people want to suddenly start paying more for everything, then they're going to get mad when they go to the grocery store and say, well, that, that you know, bag of bananas, for example, used to be three bucks. Why is it five now? Well, because you well, demanded higher wages, dum dum. Yeah. Well, and you, and you said, oh, cashier, grocery store cashiers are frontline workers and deserve to be paid like it. Right. Yeah. Good point. Well, guess what? You're going to pay more for those tomatoes. Yep. That's right. So, uh, I mean, the media, of course, constantly plays cover for, for Mr. Trudeau. And so, of course, they're going to gush about how fantastic this universal basic income is. And, of course, they're going to trot out you know, people who are doing what the lower end of the income scale who will clearly benefit from this. But, I mean, the problem is, and we've discussed this so many times, is that when you set the bar at $2,000, that means that people who would normally make even 2500 are now just not going to work, which is yep. exactly what I'm going to say about this UBI. It's not going to work, Canada. No, it isn't. And here's the here's another thing. Uh, you can't you can't pay people two thousand dollars a month and expect that their drive to to work is going to stay the same. It isn't. And I don't I don't know where this this study is that that everybody keeps saying exists that says that proves that a UBI doesn't kill ambition. BS. It absolutely kills ambition. If you're given something for free, then you don't have to work for it. And you won't work for it. Not everybody, but there is a portion of the population that are like that. And why would you do something that would 
promote that behavior in that portion of the of the uh, population. Because oh. the the thing is, is that my like my favorite comedian Joe Rogan, he puts it like this. Now I don't I don't agree with Joe Rogan on a lot of his politics, but I agree with him on this, and he says. What is the best way to make your country better? Less losers, right? And not, and he's not talking about, uh, you know, people that he's when he says losers, he means people who are who lose at life or lose at this or lose at that because they haven't been raised properly or they haven't been uh, taught properly. And, you know, you've got to, to find ways to get these people to start being winners. And it isn't by giving them free money. Because by giving them free money, you just promote that prior behavior of being broke all the time, being poor. Because here, this is something that I've always said, and my kids repeat it all the time, is... There's a difference between being poor and being broke. You could give someone who's broke a million dollars and they will have $10 million a couple of years down the road because being broke is a financial situation, but being poor is a state of mind. And you can give that same million dollars to a poor person and they'll be broke again. They'll have no money left again in a month. And there's just this segment of the population that's like that. And by giving them free money every month, they're just, it, it, it's not going to better their situation at all. No, it won't. And I mean, there's people in, in, in I, people that I know personally who would be very happy to sit on the CERB and they would, you know, live in a cardboard box, get that $2,000 a month and not even consider trying to better themselves. And, I know that's the case for a lot more people than you would think. It is because, and, and, and I don't care what anybody says. I, I'm in business. I see the, that, that people are not even applying for jobs right now. And there's lots of jobs available around here. A lot of jobs. Like I normally get at least one or two resumes a week sent to me all year long. And I haven't had a single resume sent to me since March. Yeah. Well, I mean that, and that tells enough right there. Yeah. And there's a lot of people not working. I know there is. Oh yeah. So a UBI, a UBI is, is, and, and like, okay, you said that it would benefit the poor, the poor people. It will benefit people at the beginning until the money becomes worthless because of how much we have to print. And then it won't mean anything anymore because it won't, it, they'll have to jack it up and jack it up and jack it up. And eventually they'll be giving you $8,000 a month because our money won't be worth anything. Yep, that's true. 
Now, moving on to another member of the Trudeau government, Miss Patty Haiju, who is the federal health minister. You and I had a discussion, and Michelle Rempel Garner posted a video up talking about when exactly Miss Haiju and the government were briefed about COVID 19. And this is where she made me wrong, or at least want to eat my words, because when she found out about COVID 19 and had the briefings was almost a full month before I said, I support the government on reserving travel bans and holding back to get more information because they had that information. When exactly? Apparently at the end of December. Yes. And here I was at the end of January saying, hey, you know what, Mr. Trudeau, good job on not calling for a travel ban. Good job on keeping airports open and boy, was I wrong to give him props on that. Yeah. Um, I was wrong, too, because I was right there with you saying, hey, Justin Trudeau, you're actually doing a good job on something. Um, and uh, I mean, everybody down in the U.S. is giving Trump crap right now because he was downplaying the threat of COVID and he admitted to downplaying the threat of COVID. Um, but nobody's saying a word about the fact that Justin Trudeau did it and did it for longer. That's right. Yep. And so Ms. Haiju knew back in December of at least about the existence of COVID and how bad, bad it could possibly be and decided that, well, you know, you Canadians, don't need to know this quite yet. And it wasn't until really beginning of March before suddenly she decided, well, maybe it's time to be concerned now. That's three months. Yeah. And if I remember correctly, there were members of the liberal government who criticized tr uh, Trump for, uh, for stopping flights from China um, because it was a racist move. And yet, they were saying this at the same time as they knew how dangerous this disease was. Right. Now, add to that the fact that they knew how dangerous the disease was. They knew where it was coming from. And they still sent 16 tons of personal protective equipment from Canada to China and left us short. Yeah. And we're even told that we were going to be short. They knew that we were going to be short if we sent that PPE to China. Yep. And here's what I don't get. And I'm sorry, I'm going to be yelling. Go for it. This is what I don't get. We shipped 16 tons of PPE to the country that makes the damn stuff. Yeah, boy, that puts it in perspective, doesn't it? And then we offered... And then, and, and then they seized all the PPE that was destined for Canada after that. That country had all the access to PPE that they could ever want. Why did we send them ours when they're the ones who made it in the first place and they could make it at any time? Yep, <laughs> that's right. And we tried to buy some back and... I think we'd even discussed this in one of our shows because there was two planes that were cargo planes that were supposed to be loaded up with PPE and came back <laughs> empty. 
And Mr. Trudeau basically just shrugged his shoulders. Meh, we'll get some more. And thank God now we're making it ourselves. I mean, and, you know, hats off to Canadian innovation and, and American for that matter, that we as, as countries retooled our industries so that we could start making our own. And I mean, there was companies all over this country. There was a place in Regina that started making face shields. There was companies in Ontario started making masks in British Columbia, making masks. And, you know, we managed to take care of our own, but yep. what kind of an idiot sends 16 tons of PPE from a supply that his government failed to replenish knowing that the, that, the, the stocks were low and just kind of shrugged his shoulders and thinking, yeah, I guess, I mean, was he thinking that it's okay if Canadians suffer as long as we take care of China? Like, I don't get what is in Trudeau's head. I really don't. No, I, I don't either. And I'm just, this, this is like, I was listening to uh, Michelle Rempel on um, Roy Green's show on the weekend and I just could not believe the things that she was saying that Patty Hyju and uh, and Trudeau and his cabinet did uh, when it came to COVID at the beginning. Like we're finding out a lot more information every day. Like, I mean, you think you think we has uh, you know new new uh, uh, info coming out every day. We're finding and they do. Out, yeah, and they do. But we're finding out all kinds of other stuff about how they handled COVID every single day. And Michelle Rempel's like really ringing the alarm here. And and the, it's like the media is barely paying attention to it. And that's probably the, the, the biggest part is you're right. The media is not paying attention to it. And if I mean... I guess I have such cynicism for the lamestream media, as I call them, that they're probably, you know, deliberately trying to sweep this under the rug because it makes their boy look bad. Well, he does a fantastic job of that all on his own. Yeah, I mean, this is this is stuff. That, this is when the media, like, this is when you know you can't trust the media because a, a real unbiased media reports on everything and it doesn't matter who it was yeah well and uh to paraphrase ben shapiro being these people really should be journalism right now and they're not yeah there's there's not very much journalism mean going on it's it's like i mean we've always said in canada that the globe and mail the toronto star uh the cbc they're like the the uh, the PR wings of the Liberal Party of Canada, and we've been saying that for decades, and it's true. Like you, you, it's very very rare that those media outlets uh, ever condemn. They'll they might report on some things, like they're reporting on we right now, but they're not they're not coming down hard on Trudeau or anything. Like they're they're almost making it sound like. You know, it's okay because they were trying to save, you know, they were trying to help Canadian students. Well, it's kind of like what they were saying about SNC-Lavalin, right? It's okay. They were trying to save Canadian jobs, which, by the way, they didn't save at all. Yeah. And I mean, and SNC-Lavalin is a whole other story. And that's something that we probably should discuss on another show, too. But yeah. 
Well, we've, we've got so much more to, to talk about. Let's jump on to the Conservative Party of Canada. Yep. I want to give two shout-outs to Aaron O'Toole on jobs well done. Number one, he has made Candace Bergen the deputy leader of the party. Fantastic yep. choice. Great move. Number two, he has kept his promise, and the Conservative Party of Canada is paying back the money that they took through the wage subsidy program. Yes, and another great move. Yes, interesting to note on that move, the Liberal Party of Canada has said they will stop receiving the money, but they've made no uh, suggestions that they'll pay back the $800,000 they benefited from it. And the NDP, oink, 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 they want to continue to, to draw that money and stay at the trough. Well, of course they do, because they're broke. Yep. Just like Peter McKay. <laughs> yeah. Peter McKay, I don't know if you knew this, but Peter McKay has a $1 million uh, debt in his, uh, in his campaign run to be leader of the CPC. And he has, I believe, three years to pay that off um, or else he could face massive fines and jail time. Okay. I did not actually know that part. Well, well, well. Yeah. And the only, and there's, there's very, very strict rules about how you can pay that off. You cannot pay that off with your own money as, uh, as, um, uh, Kevin O'Leary found out during his short run for leader because he ended up with a half million dollar uh, uh, debt in his uh, leadership run and had a very, very difficult time paying it off in time. And uh, and it, I believe it can only be paid off through donations. So Peter McKay is going to have an extremely difficult time paying off that million dollar debt. Wow! Yeah, I did that. That I did not know. So, uh, well, good luck, Mr. McKay. Yeah. Now, back with Aaron O'Toole, you had yeah. uh, mentioned that he and Francois Legault had met recently. Yes. I didn't actually know that. So, yeah, they did, and um, and this is where I'm going to have to say I'm disappointed in Aaron O'Toole. Um, he is pandering. A little bit to Quebec. Um, he uh, he came out after his meeting with uh, Francois Legault and said that he supports um, Bill One Hundred One being, uh, or sorry, he supports corporations and businesses be, to being subjected to Bill One Hundred One, and uh, also. Um, this one I agree with him on is that he said he will not interfere with the uh, with the secular law in in Quebec because it, it's it's provincial jurisdiction. The federal government has no business interfering in that, and he's right. Um, but which the media still seems to can't they, they can't figure out. But uh, but it's the whole Bill One Hundred One thing that I have a hard time with. Um, Bill 101 in Quebec is the French language law and uh, enforces sign regulations. Like if you have 
English on your signs. It must be, you know, it has to be a certain percentage of the height of the black of the French letters. Um, you, like you can't. There's a lot of a lot of regulations, but they are wanting to expand it and force corporations and and all of this to have to follow even stricter language laws and Aaron O'Toole said he supports it and I have a hard time with that that's crazy I yeah I mean Bill of 101 is well it, it, it's it's frankly it's racist I mean it's if you have a business and your clientele happens to be English speaking and your business happens to be in an English speaking area you still have to have not only French signage, but as you said, the French la French language letters lettering has to be bigger than the English language lettering, even if your clientele isn't reading the French at all anyway. And I mean, I realize that they want to preserve the French language and French culture, but draconian measures like this, and especially when they are imposing them upon companies that may or may not require the French language, it's, I, I have no words. It's ridiculous. Well, and, you know, if you go to, um, if you go to Montreal and say you go to the West Island and you go into a store, they will say, they, the, the people working there would greet you with, bonjour, hello. And then you would respond in the language that you speak because in Montreal, like half the population of Montreal speaks English as a first language. And, but Bill 101, but Bill 101 was supposed to officially put a stop to that. And uh, along with other, many, many other things, but they continued to do it until recently. And I believe in the last year or two and the Quebec government has started enforcing that on uh, stores even in the West Island of Montreal. So you can go into a store in the West, End, West Island of Montreal and they are legally not supposed to speak English to you anymore. Okay, that's ridiculous. Yeah. And so this is this and, and now they want to enforce this on corporations and, and, and businesses and all this when it comes to many other aspects of this law. And, uh, and it's, I can just see a lot of businesses saying, you know what, forget it. Those 7 million people aren't worth it. Oh, totally. Yeah. Cause it's a small market for a lot of companies. Quebec is a small market. It's only 7 million people. I mean, that's, that's less than the city of New York. Right. So it's, they're not going to conform to that, to, to these laws and remain doing business in Quebec. Yeah, and, and who could blame them? No, I, I don't blame them at all. Yeah, so sticking because, with Quebec. Honestly, honestly, like in a free market society, you would leave that up to the up to the uh, uh, the patron of the business to decide if they want to support that business or not. If that business doesn't want to provide their services in French then you just don't go there and that business goes out of business. But we live in a society now where we feel that the government should force businesses to do things. Well, how about let's just leave it up to the free market 
And if the people don't like it, they won't support it. Amen, brother. I am all about the free market. And actually, that's a good segue to, uh, to the next topic, and we'll stay in Quebec with this one, is the free market for Western energy. And there was a, the latest poll from the Montreal Economic Institute is actually no surprise because this is very similar numbers to how they've polled in the last few years. But their most recent poll, uh, which just was released last week, talking about the energy sector and 71% of Quebecers polled want to Quebec to buy their oil from Western Canada. What I find even, well, I won't say more surprised, but equally surprising slash encouraging is that 41% of those same Quebecers want that Western oil via a pipeline. Interesting. Isn't it though? We we keep being told by you know Monsieur Legault and other politicians that you know there's no social acceptability and we don't want that dirty oil, but people on the ground seem to be telling a different story. Well, and that's usually the case, isn't it? I mean, Sadly, politi- it is. Politicians have their own agenda, and they'll project it onto the population as if it's. The as if it's the general population that has this this belief, but in many many cases, it, it just isn't that just isn't reality. And, uh, and and I mean, I think that that's what you're seeing right now with in Quebec when it comes to Western oil. And uh, and I mean, it's not even close. Like they said that place, you know, preferred you know, place where they would purchase their oil products would be the States. And it was down at like 14%. So, I mean, overwhelmingly Quebecers want Western Canadian oil and overwhelmingly they want it to go by pipeline. Like when the, there were the methods of shipping were, were pulled the 41% for a pipeline. The next on the list, I believe was rail, which was like 16%. I'm surprised it was even that high considering that Lac Megantique happened in Quebec. Yeah, you know, and, that, and you make a good point. I mean, that was, a, you know, enormous tragedy. And yeah, people still think that rail is safe. Now, what kind of ticked me off when I heard the interview with the fellow from the Economic Institute of Montreal is he was saying, well, Energy East, you know, really should have tried to move the pipeline elsewhere. And I wonder if he may have forgotten that Energy East was attempting to use existing pipelines that had been used for natural gas. So it wasn't a matter of building the pipeline somewhere else. It was already there. They just wanted to convert it to oil. Yeah. No, well, I doubt that he knew that. I mean, because most of the people who criticize oil and and your anti-oil or anti-pipeline activists, they don't actually know what they're talking about. Well, that's true. No, they base it. It's always yeah. based on emotion rather than fact. Yeah, no, that's a good point. So, uh, yeah, so it's uh, it's a real shame, and I actually can almost go along with the argument that you know there's there you know there's unrest about having a pipeline because I think that Energy East pipeline, the the existing gas pipeline does go just south of Montreal and kind of along the St. Lawrence, is it not? I believe it does, yeah. 
Yeah. So, I mean, I get that because there's population centers close by and, and even though it's the safest method of transporting oil, the possibility of a spill is so low. And even if a spill does happen, there is enough pressure sensors slash valves in place that, you know, they're, they're shut off almost instantaneously as soon as the pressure drops a certain degree. But because it's oil and because we have a bunch of weenie leftists in this country, we're where we are. Yeah, exactly. We're, we're left with, uh, you know, shipping that oil out to uh, the coast of BC by rail car and then pumping it onto a tanker and then shipping that tanker down to the Panama Canal and having it come all the way back up the east coast of the U.S. and docking uh, in um, on the east coast to have it offloaded there and refined. That's what we're doing right now. 11,500 kilometers to get a shipment of oil from Western Canada to Eastern Canada when a pipeline would take it, if it was coming from Alberta, 3,500, 4,000 kilometers. Yep. No, it's uh, ridiculous. It's, it's beyond ridiculous. And these people claim that they care about yeah. the oceans and whales and all of that kind of stuff, but they're quite happy to have it shipped on a tanker all the way around halfway around the world to get to the other side of our, of our country. Yeah, it's absolutely ridiculous. And this is a theme that I'm about to bring up that we have talked about to death, probably ever since we started our show and this is leadership and the, the lack thereof. And if we actually had some leadership and had people who are in positions of power that actually had some huevos, cojones, those things, maybe, just maybe they would actually think probably better for Canada if we actually built a pipeline instead of 11,500 kilometers of marine travel for a tanker full of oil. Yeah. Like, we're just crazy. Yeah. No, we have no leadership in this country. None. No, and uh, <laughs> here we go again, Canada, leaving you on a downer. I see we're at our time here. Well, <laughs> now, let, let's, let's, one let's day, end uh, it on an, on an upper. How about that? Sure. Right. So we've been telling you guys over the past few weeks how our listenership is up and how over the past six weeks our lis- listenership had doubled. Um, I want to bring you another good stat for our listenership, and that is... Over the past year, our listenership has increased by fivefold. So oh that's a great, a great way to end this show. <laughs> that certainly is. That that is fantastic news, and, and I thank you for doing the research on that because I I did not know that. But boy, that uh, that is a great way it to is. end the show. So yes, thank you, Canada. Thank you, Poland. Uh, thank you, um, India and uh, the United States and Scotland, <laughs> because we have listeners in places I never thought we would. Um, so thank you all. And uh, from me, Lewis, out here in BC, I want to wish you a good night. And Tony here in Saskatchewan. Good night, Canada. 
Louis Antoni.